Go to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This is a very, very revealing text. I hope everybody here will will take to heart these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to them. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. Now our Lord is using symbolism here. He doesn't mean that there's an actual gate physically. He's creating a picture for us. There is a gate and it is narrow. But there's not only the narrow gate, there's another gate. Now listen to what he says. For the gate is wide. This isn't the narrow one. This is the wide one. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction you see what he's doing he's he's describing gates and a way that follows that gate that goes to destruction that's hell and those who enter it are now catch this word m-a-n-y how many people are headed to destruction Many. For the gate is narrow. Now he goes back to that first gate he talked about. This isn't the wide one. This is the narrow one. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. Eternal life. And those who find it are few. That alone may be shocking to some of you that sit here. A 2005, I know that's three years off by now, but it's not too too far in the past. But a 2005 ABC News poll stated that a staggering 79% of adult age Americans believe themselves to be Christians. 79%. So on average, you know what that means. For every 10 people you meet, Eight of them believe they possess eternal life and are on their way to heaven. Now listen, Christ Jesus, the God-man, the one who alone saves sinners, the one who alone knows the exact number of his own people, he says, few find eternal life. He says many are on the way that leads to destruction. 79% of adults in this country believe they are on the way that leads to life. I just want to ask you this simple question. Is 79% many or is it few? It's many. Many believe they're on the way of life. But Jesus didn't say that many are on the way of life. Rather, He said just the opposite. Those who find it are few. Most Americans believe they're going to heaven. Jesus says only a few actually will. Someone here is wrong. And I would bet my soul on it. It's not Jesus. Just think of the terrible and awesome day. When the Lord Jesus Christ robed in His judgment day majesty will shock not just a few, but many sinners with the stunning revelation that hell is theirs, not heaven. And I'm very possibly talking about some of you. You're right there in Matthew chapter 7. Look down just a few verses at at verse 21. Is this you? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Boy, just because you talk about the Lord, you sing about the Lord, you pray to the Lord, 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or speaks to me about Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now look at this, 22, on that day, again, here's that word, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, did many mighty works in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This doesn't say that all are mistaken. But it does say many. 79% believe themselves Christian. Not all are wrong. But many are. The question to be asked right now is, how does this happen? How can so many people be so certain of heaven... And yet be so wrong. You know why this is so important to answer? Because many in this room claim to be Christians and have this very same hope. Don't many of you, if not all of you, have the same hope? I do. I'm hoping for exactly what the people in verse 21 are hoping for. I'm hoping to enter the kingdom Of heaven. Listen. But many will not get what they hope for. Rather they'll be forced to depart from Christ. Into outer darkness. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. How do I know. I'm not wrong. How do I know that in the end. I won't turn out. To be just like those. Who are turned away. Do you want an answer? Plainly spoken? Well, here it is. God tells us in His Word that there are things that are true of every single Christian that are never true of those who are not Christian. Did you get that? Did you follow that? There is evidence that proves who the children of God are and that evidence is missing from all who are not children of God. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5. You don't have to turn there, but listen to the words. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul says this to the Corinthian Christians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now, folks, this is very interesting. Paul assumes. Now think about this. Think with if if an apostle can look at Christians and say to them, well, they're professing Christians. Examine yourselves to know whether you're in the faith. He is making an assumption in that statement. He is assuming that it is indeed possible to examine yourselves and come to an accurate conclusion about whether or not you are in fact a Christian. He doesn't assume it's impossible to know. The telltale signs of true Christianity are examinable. They are provable. They are testable. They are discernible. They are identifiable. So, you know what all that means? It boils down to this. 
What we really need to do is figure out what things are always true of believers that are never true of unbelievers. Doesn't that make sense? What we don't want to do is look at things that are true of both believers and unbelievers. That's why, like I said before, you don't want to say, God delivered me from an accident, and so I know I'm a Christian. You don't want to say, He healed me, so I know I'm a Christian. You don't want to say, I've been baptized, so I know I'm a Christian. You don't want to say, I go to church, so I know I'm a Christian. Because unbelievers can do all those things and have all those things done to them. That's why you don't want to go there. Now, look, it's okay if you've had that. It's okay if you just have a feeling that you're a Christian. But you don't want to bank the whole deal on that, folks. You want to go to those very specific factors that are only true of God's children, that are never true of those who are not God's children. If God does things in the life of His children that He doesn't do in the lives of anyone else, all I have to do is examine myself to see whether those things are true of me or not. If they are, I'm saved. If they're not, I'm not saved. It's as simple as that. Look, if I say to you guys, there goes a car. Look, you guys can know a car by the fact that it has tires. You can know a car by the fact it's got an engine. You can know it because it's meant to transport people from one place to another. Okay, now I come to an object like this. And I begin looking at it. And I say, well, you know, I'm not really certain if this thing has tires. I don't see them. I, I look at this thing. I, I don't know if it's got an engine. It's pretty doubtful that this thing was ever created to transport anybody. Wouldn't it then be absolutely ludicrous to determine, to come to the conclusion that this thing is a car? And yet, isn't it absolutely amazing that although people won't do that kind of craziness with regards to a pulpit, they'll do it with themselves with regards to Christianity. How many foolish men and foolish women are quick to identify themselves as Christians, children of God, when the very evidences that they are so are lacking. Listen to me. Assurance and confidence, that's great. That's good. It's a blessing. It's good to be certain that you're a child of God, but only if you are one. Only then. Only there. Folks, Christianity, I hear this. Christianity is distinct. It is definite. It holds its own characteristics. It is unique. There are no other people on the face of all this earth who are like Christians. They are particular people entirely different from all other human beings because God makes them different. And the glory of all this is that if you contain the evidences and experiences that are alone characteristic of God's children, then there's only one conclusion. It's because you are a child of God. You can be certain of it. You can jump for joy and shout and run in circles. You can get all worked up and stirred up and you can thank God and you can praise Him and you can begin to plan and devise great strategies for reaching out to the prostitutes out here or going overseas to the mission field or going to Sutton Homes or working with the young people or whatever it is. You can do this and you can do it with joy and it just unleashes you and frees you. If you look and you see these, these evidences are there, it, God means for them to fill you, fill you with this great confidence that Christ is yours. Paradise is yours. The love of God is yours. Eternal weight of glory is yours. So folks, and I say all that because this is so critical. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Many are on the broad way. 
Many of those on the broad way that leads to destruction believe they're on the narrow way. And it's not going to be until the day of judgment they're going to find out they're wrong. I don't want you guys to be wrong. And a lot of times they're wrong because they're listening to preachers that preach garbage. And they tickle people's ears. Listen, I don't want to deceive you. I want you to know the truth. You may be offended by it. You may not like it. But I'm not going to gloss it over. If you don't have the signs, you're not joining this church. And if you don't have the indications, you're on your way to hell. I mean, that's I know that's blatant. That's dogmatic. But that's the fact, folks. There are evidences. And if they're lacking, they're lacking. And if they're there, they're there. And if they're there, praise God, you're in. You're one of His. You're going. All the way, you're going to make it. So many people that are going to be deceived in the end are so because they never hear this. Nobody ever tells them. They either don't go to church at all or the places they go, nobody's ever faithful with them. So, yes, we're in a series in Romans. And that's where we're going right now. Romans 8, verse 14. Here is just such a distinguishing mark of every true child of God. Romans 8, 14. been long in coming it's been a number of messages in coming but we're finally here Romans 8:14 here is a mark that distinguishes every true christian from every person who is not a true christian it, this is distinguishing between who professes to be and who doesn't profess to be this distinguishes between who actually is and who isn't irregardless of what you profess Here it is, Romans 8.14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see that little word all? That means there are no exceptions. All God's children can be known by this fact. They are Spirit-led. And what about all those who are not children of God? You can look back at verse 9. You're in verse 14. Just go back a few verses. Romans 8, 9. Anyone, pick it up where it says anyone. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. To Christ. They don't belong to God. Taking these two verses together, here's what you have. The lost man is not led by the Spirit of God because the lost man does not have the Spirit of God. The saved man, the justified man, the man who is the Son of God, is in the Spirit, has the Spirit dwelling in him. And the nature of that Spirit is to lead him. So, plain and simple, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to God. We all see that, right? That's pretty plain. Now, you might say, wait, we still have a big problem here. We can all see and read and comprehend that being led by the Spirit is a sure proof and guarantee of being a child of God, of being a Christian. That certainly is evident from the verse. But none of it means anything. Unless we have a crystal clear understanding of what being led by the Spirit actually means. Right? But if I say, hey Joshua, run out to the van. I have ten books out there. Would you grab the one with the picture of Charles Spurgeon on it. That's all great and fine, as long as Joshua knows what Charles Spurgeon looks like, right? I mean, if he doesn't know that, he can know there's a unique book out there with a unique picture of a unique guy, but if he runs out there, he's not going to be able to distinguish that book from any other book that has a picture of somebody on it if he doesn't know what Spurgeon looks like. So, I mean, we're so it is with with being led by the Spirit. We're in the same boat. I can know it to be an evidence of true Christians and still lack the ability to identify true Christians because I don't grasp the concept. So, what does being led by the Spirit of God mean? Now, before we jump to any conclusions, 
just think about this. It might be helpful to consider that if you just do a bit of a study, you've got your Bible software, you've got your concordance, you just do a little bit of study on the Spirit of God, you'll find very quickly that the Spirit of God led people like wicked Balaam to bless rather than curse Israel. Right? The Spirit of God led the disobedient, often demon-plagued King Saul of Israel to prophesy and do a number of things. Right? I mean, I say that because it's definitely possible for the Spirit of God to lead people in a general sense who are not children of God. This can't be what Paul's talking about in Romans 8.14. Just listen, just because you had a dream or a vision or an impression or a feeling or a sensation of any kind, supernatural leading in your life, you may be no more a child of God than wicked Balaam was. So just because you had a supernatural experience or sensation or something or leading, that doesn't mean... I mean, you got to remember those people there in Matthew chapter 7, they not only had supernatural dealings, they were casting out demons, they were doing many mighty works. The supernatural is not a guarantee. So, Paul has something else in mind here. And he doesn't leave us into the dark to what that is. Now, notice, you have, now you have to have your Bibles open right there to Romans chapter 8, and you've got to put your nose in there because you, you need to follow this. Notice very carefully that verse 14 starts with the word for. It could also be translated because. Maybe some of your Bibles have because. It is a conjunction. Conjunctions do what? They connect. They connect. That means verse 14 is not a new thought. It's a continuation of verse 13. Paul is simply giving further explanation in verse 14 of the thought he started in 13, right? He's building on what he just said. And what did he just say? Look at Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now here's where you really need to start paying attention. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, if you notice the last half of verse 13, basically, this is what Paul says. If you put to death the sinful deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit, you will experience eternal life. But Paul knows that this could be misleading to the reader. It could mislead them into thinking that eternal life is gained through works. Because it almost sounds like that, doesn't it? It sounds like putting sin to death is what merits life. It does seem to say that. Now, here's the thing. Yes, killing sin and eternal life always go together. They always do. Where you have the one, you always have the other. But killing sin is never the cause of eternal life. So Paul, realizing that, immediately addresses the problem with verse 14, where he seeks to answer the question, why do people who put sin to death by the Spirit live? And he answers, because all who are led to kill sin like this are children of God. They live not because they put sin to death. They live because they have been born again and are children of God. Putting sin to death isn't the cause of eternal life. It's the proof of eternal life. Do you all see that? So in essence, Paul is saying this. If you are led by the Spirit to put sinful deeds of the body to death, 
you will live because all who are led in this fashion to kill sin are sons of God. That means the leading of the spirit here does not refer to guidance in everyday decisions. The context shows us Paul is referring to the spirit of God leading Christians in a way that specifically takes them out of sin into obedience. So here is exactly the evidence of Christianity that we've been looking for. Something that is true of every child of God. At the same time, it is never true of anyone else. And we know it's never true of anyone else because verses 7, 8, and 9 right here in Romans 8 describe everyone who is not a child of God as those who cannot keep God's law, they cannot please God, and they do not have the Spirit. But the children of God do keep God's law. I mean, 1 John says that. If you say you know Him and you're not keeping His commandments, it says you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. They can please their Heavenly Father. They do have the Spirit of God. And the, now listen to this. The evidence presented to us right here in Romans 8, 13 and 14 that someone is a true Son of God is that the Spirit of the living Christ dwells in them and confirms His presence by leading them to kill sin. The Spirit leads us to do battle with sin. These two verses affirm that every child of God who has lived, is living, will live, each of them will have this characteristic in common. The Spirit leads us into war with our depravity. The children of God have a Spirit-given hatred for sin. Where once we live to fulfill godless fleshly passions, our values and priorities and preferences and tastes are now radically different. They're not what they used to be. The Spirit makes us hate what our Father in Heaven hates and love what our Father in Heaven loves. We become like Him. I mean, Peter says something that is almost unimaginable. I wouldn't even say it. I'd think it was heresy if he didn't say it. Peter says we have been made partakers of the divine nature. That means the very nature of God and the way He hates sin and loves holiness. The way He reacts towards sin. The way He is pure. The way He is holy. It doesn't mean we become God. It means that those attributes and characteristics of the divine character are become ours. Brethren, please listen to me. The greatest evidence that you are a child of God, one who is an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, one who will be glorified in the end and possess an eternal weight of glory, is that you possess the seal that guarantees you of this inheritance. And that seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Without exception, every child of God possesses this seal. And without exception, every child of God possesses this Holy Spirit who leads them in a path of obedience away from sin and evil and corruption and depravity. Every child of God will know the truth of this. Where once we lived that way, it's now no longer the way. We're led away by the Spirit, every child of God, it's a reality. Listen, some think, oh no, I don't know if I'm a Christian because I'm struggling so much with sin. Don't you hear God? God comes along and says, no, my child, that is the very evidence that you do belong to me. The very reason you are concerned and struggling and encountering this battle is because the Spirit is leading you into that battle. He's leading you right into the thick of where Satan rages and the flesh kicks. And the imps of hell will come alongside and whisper in your ear, 
that if you're really a child of God, you wouldn't be struggling and fighting with sin the way you are. But listen, God thunders through all these hellish voices right here. And He says, fight on my child. All who are truly mine are led this very same way. Take comfort. You are mine. Eternal life is yours. The inheritance is yours. Call me Abba. Know I love you. This is reality. I want you to know you belong to me. Listen. Folks, back there in Matthew 7, Jesus said the gate is narrow. The way is hard. That leads to life. It's hard. It's not the way life is hard for the sinner. Because the consequences of their sin is hard. It's hard because you are killing sin and led to do so by the Spirit and sin doesn't die easy. That's why it's hard. So, I'm going to wrap up my message by giving you nine concluding marks or remarks actually. Look, I want you all to know if you're a child of God. A child of God. Here's the first one. Closing with nine marks. Paul, first one. A child of God experiences spirit-led triumph with sin. Paul isn't indicating that it might be a nice idea if the children of God were led to battle with sin. There, it, it isn't some do and some don't. It's not theory. It's not just the ideal, but nobody ever really attains it. Or very few of God's children really attain it. Remember the word all. A-L-L. All who are led by the Spirit, are sons of God. Listen. Children of God are led by the Spirit. And the Spirit actually leads them somewhere. That somewhere is to the place where they do actually resist sin, detest sin, grieve over sin, fight with sin, and actually triumph over sin. He doesn't do this once or twice. It's the ongoing experience of every true child of God. I emphasize experience. Hear that word. Because it is a personal encounter. Look, you can walk out of here today and none of you are going to be baffled as to whether or not you had an experience with this church. It's the same. To have a leading of the Spirit of God against sin is a personal encounter with the leading of the Spirit that is personally observable. It is knowable. In other words, you will sense it. It won't be vague. It won't be indistinct. It won't be ambiguous and unintelligible. You will know that you and sin are at odds. And other people who look at your life will know that you are at odds with it. If one of the main reasons... Listen. I mean, seriously examine this. If one of the main reasons you want to go to heaven is because the thought of being rid of sin forever fills you with elation... You are my brother in Christ. You are a child of God. Now, if you only want heaven because you're afraid of hell, I'm afraid you're going that way. Two, a child of God experiences what few others experience. Remember, Jesus says, few 
there be that find it. When the Spirit of God leads God's people into holiness and righteousness away from the muck and the filth of sin, it results in experiences that the majority of people do not experience. You understand that? You won't be like everyone else. You won't be even like, catch this, you will not even be like most professing Christians. Because remember, in that day, many... And so what happens is when you're being led this way, what you're going to have is you're going to have many others who look at you and think that you are narrow, that you are legalistic, that you are overboard, excessive, strange, even cultic, and a whole host of other choice descriptions. But you just remember this. Only few are led this way. So you will be an oddity. Only few. So don't be surprised if most others, even professing Christians, aren't overly enthused about the path the Holy Spirit is leading you on. I tell you this, folks, beware when everybody applauds you. You're in a much safer position when they all look at you and they say, you are strange, you've gone overboard, you are cultic. Well, you've, you've gone and joined a cult, haven't you? That's better when they say that than when all men applaud you. Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. If people don't recognize that you are odd, you should be afraid. When the world can look at you and say, you're just like us, shake and tremble. Because destruction is in front of you. The Spirit of God always makes those few on the way of life look bizarre and ridiculous to the rest of the world. Strange. But that's okay. We are strange. We're a particular people. Three. A child of God experiences what he at one time did not experience. Now this is key. This is really critical. You guys grasp this. Every child of God, were they always a child of God? No way. The Bible says, you can probably think, Ephesians chapter 2. You were, what? Once children of wrath. But, you're not anymore. Right? God did something in their lives. P Peter says it like this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Well, here's the thing. If only the children of God are led by the Spirit of God, and one time I wasn't a child of God, I was a child of wrath, guess what was true of my life when I was a child of wrath? The Spirit of God did not do what? Lead me out of sin. And that's, isn't that exactly consistent with the Scriptures? Isn't that exactly consistent with Ephesians chapter 2? It says at one time, you know, folks, you were back there, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You wallowed in it. You drank it. But when you become a child of God, the Spirit of God leads you out of that cesspool this way. Here's the point. If you are a true child of God, you will have an experience in your life where at one time, you were in sin, you looked to Christ, and you came away from that, now being led by the Spirit away from sin. You know why that's so key? Because that's biblical. And I have people. I can remember a conversation right over in this area. A man staring me right in the eyes, and he said, my brother was a crack addict, and he died of a crack overdose but I know he was a Christian. I had somebody just recently tell me, I, I ran in sin as a teenager, but I know I was saved. I've had people look at me and say, I know the fruits of life are not in my life, but I know I'm a Christian. How do you know? How do you know? The very evidence isn't there. But you realize what you've just done? You just made yourself just like those people who are going to find out in that day that they're not true. Look, if you just 
have always been a good old boy. You're just a nice guy. Nothing's really ever changed in your life. Don't assume. Look, the Christian life is a life where we are saved from what we used to be. I realize it's different. The experiences are different. I realize if children are saved at a very young age, the, the depth of sin they're saved out of will be shallower just because of their shallow years. But I'm telling you this. Paul says this. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation in Christ. And what does he say? Old things are passed away. All things become new. The new comes in. Look, if you don't have a testimony in your life where you can say, I was like that, I looked to Christ, and now the Spirit of God is leading me in a direction I did not go in before, I'm telling you folks, you're in trouble. People come along and, and they want to believe that they're Christians because something happened, but it wasn't a change in their relationship to sin. So be cautious. Four, your experience is totally contrary to the Romans 7 experience. Bear with me, Brother Craig. Where are you? Listen, you guys need to see this because Romans 7 is in context with Romans 8. It's a whole argument. Now, I'll tell you this. What these verses here in Romans 8, 14 through 17 are dealing with is assurance that you might know that glorification is yours and be certain that you're going to persevere to the end. You know what the indication is? The indication is being led away from sin. Not into... The guy in Romans 7 is of the flesh, sold under sin, and practicing the evil that he doesn't want to do, and he is a wretched man. I'll tell you what, folks. The very indication, the place our assurance comes from is not that life. Our assurance comes from the life where we see that by the Spirit, I'm being led in a direction away from sin, killing sin, into holiness, into righteousness. It is no wonder that in the circles where they most heavily press that that wretched man is a Christian are the very circles where assurance is most lacking. Five. I know, I know we've I knew this was going to be a long message, folks, and I thank you for bearing with me. I just I couldn't I tried to shorten it several times. But we're, we're these really are short. We're moving quickly. Then then we'll eat. So bear with me. Five. You experience this leading even when others aren't watching. Now this is critical because the Spirit of God leads his people all the time. You see the difference between the moral man and the Christian. Christ described these guys that sought morality, right? They sought for others to see them. They prayed to be seen. They gave to be seen. The thing is, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're led when no one's watching. You're led in the mind when where no one can see. You're led when you're all alone. Look, all I ask you to do is this. Why do you do what you do? How goes it with you in the Spirit in the lonely place? Next, number six. You experience this with regards to every sin. Again, this is where we can compare the moralist and the legalist with the true Christian. Hey, there are people that run around pretty outwardly moral, but that doesn't mean they're Christians. You see, Jesus Christ said this, you've got to surrender all. He said, unless you forsake all that you have, you can't be my disciple. The Spirit of God leads us into total submission to the Lordship of Christ. One thing you've got to look at in your life, is it possible for you to harbor sin? Certain sins. Is that possible? Folks, listen. It's one thing to clean up your life in a few places. But let me ask you this. 
have you experienced since you've professed to be a Christian the fact that the Holy Spirit will never let you long hold dearly to an idol? Do you know the experience of Him coming on a regular basis and plucking those idols? Listen, if you can maintain some illicit relationship that you know Christ is not pleased with, though you come in the church, if you don't lay everything down, including your money, if you've got some little part of your life that you can keep reserved and away from the touch of the Master, and the Spirit never comes around and lays you low for it, you're not a child of God. Seven, you experience this by way of the Word of God. Listen, Jesus Christ said, you'll know you're my disciples if my Word abides in you. How do, how do I know the path of righteousness away from sin? How do I even know what sin is? I know it from the Word of God. The Spirit of God leads people in the Word of God. And you know one of the things Peter tells us? There will be a desire in every child of God for the Word of God. Now listen, if you are seldom in the Word of God, you have no desire to read it, you have to force yourself sometimes, it's not very enjoyable, you don't find it to be your daily food, it's very suspect whether you can be a Christian. Eight, you experience this with joy. Now that's critical, because... You know what you have in so much of the religious world out here? People really putting forth sweat to do the things they don't like to do. And to resist doing the things that they really do want to do. Folks, did, did you ever read in 1 John that it's not grievous for the Christian? To keep the commandments. Did you ever read David? How he just, he delighted. Not just to hear it. But to do it. That's the problem with the Roman 7 guy. He didn't do it. He practiced evil all the time. The next thing is, the last thing. You experience this beholding. Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. The Spirit of God does this as we look at Christ. Degree by degree, we are conformed into that image. So I'll just tell you this. Is Christ constantly in your gaze? I mean, do you long for heaven just as much because you're going to be rid of sin? Because Christ is going to be there. Look, folks, if you're not in the Word regularly and you're not gazing upon Christ regularly, that's where the Spirit leads His people. If Christ isn't regularly in your thoughts, in your mind, in your life, folks, you're in trouble. The Spirit of God came into this world to glorify Jesus Christ. And in this conquest over sin, He leads us to gaze on the glory of the Son of God. If He's not leading you there regularly, constantly, frequently, daily, continuously, go back and start your hunt for religion all over again. Start at the cross. Go back there and gaze on Him until the assurance comes, until the Spirit is given. Look, this, this isn't a game. What I said to you guys, all of this is provable from the Scriptures. All of it. This is so critical. Right now, I know we've we're, having, we're baptizing five today. We baptized two several weeks ago. We have a number of others that are inquiring about the church. And I just want you to know this. The church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church is a body of believers. And we want every believer that wants to join this church, 
we're not going to make you jump through hoops. We want you to come on in. But if you're not a believer, it's not that that we're trying to be partial. I mean, in a way, we do want to be as far as who's Christian and who's not. But what we don't want to do is give people the false impression that everything's okay. We want to honor the Lord. This is His church. It's not ours. And so we have to let people in that meet the qualifications that He gives, not that we make. So we want you to realize that. If, if some of you want, get to the place where you want to join the church and we begin to put up barriers, the reason is because there's evidence that you're not meeting the mark. You're not, and that's not our standard. That's his. You say, you're not in any place to judge other people. Wait a second, we are definitely in a place to discern where people are at. That text from the Scriptures about judge not, those people who so flippantly throw that around don't even realize what that's really saying. The fact is, the people who are told not to judge there, in the end, are told to correctly discern after they fix problems in their own life. We are definitely called to discern ourselves, examine yourselves, and we are definitely called to look out and make spiritual assessments of others. I mean, I'm supposed to bear other people's burdens. I'm supposed to be looking for them. I'm supposed to admonish sin in others. You know, have you ever seen that, that lost people are supposed to rebuke sin, or rather saved people are supposed to rebuke sin in lost people? Folks, you can't do that unless you're making assessments about where that is. The Spirit of God leads every true child of God out of sin. There will be a battle with sin. And it's a thing that happens in the course of time when you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if those things fit together, that's all. That's it. It's not hard. We don't don't have, you know, we don't have perpetual catechisms and, and that type of thing. But what we do have is an honor for Jesus Christ and for His Word. And what we want is this to be a spiritual body. We want it to be a living body. And we don't want to freely invite those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And so we are going to be making spiritual discernments. We don't just open the door broad for every single person who comes along. Look, if, you, if you're interested in joining the church, definitely come to us and talk to us. But please, joining the church isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is examining yourself to know whether indeed you are on your way to glory. Because if you're in, folks, you're going to go into those gates of heaven whether you're a member of this church or not. The real critical aspect in all this is when you look at yourself, do you measure up? The most important thing isn't that we measure you. It's that you measure you. Because only you can know. We we can only observe from the outside. But you know what goes on in the recesses of that heart. You know what goes on in your thoughts. You know the experience. Whether it's true and valid and real or not. Amen. You're dismissed.